morning. He is alive, right? I guess many of you are not sure if he's alive, right? Huh? <laughs> well, then you'll know you're dead. I don't know. All right. You want to wait for that joke. So how's everybody doing this morning? Are you alive? You alive? You sure? All right. Well, sort of, kind of. It is a tough crowd. Well, there was this plane, and uh, it was going to crash, and there were just four passengers on board, and just three parachutes, unfortunately, and the first passenger was a heart surgeon, and he said, my patients need me, and he grabbed a parachute, and he jumped. Uh, the second person was a uh, rocket scientist, and he said, I'm one of the smartest men in the world, and the, my country still needs me, and he grabbed a parachute, and he jumped, and the third guy on board was a pastor, and the fourth one was a 10-year-old Boy Scout, and the pastor said to the 10-year-old Boy Scout, you know, I've lived a long life, and I'm ready to see the Lord, so why don't you take the third parachute and jump? And the 10-year-old Boy Scout said to the pastor, relax, Reverend, the world's smartest man just jumped out with my backpack. <laughs> and uh, I guess the moral of that story isn't is that we're not always as smart as we think we are, are we? In fact, Proverbs 16, 8 said, Pride goes before the fall. No pun intended, right? Pride goes before destruction. And this morning as we continue our study in the book of Revelation, we're going to look at the second half of Revelation in chapter 20, and I've entitled the message, Nothing Hidden, Nothing Hidden. Father, I thank you for each and every single person here this morning to come out. They set their clocks forward and made it here, and I'm so appreciative of that. And I just know that you invited them here, and I just thank you for the worship that's already taken place. I thank you for Bill and, and the worship team. Bless them, Lord God. Thank you for them and just their dedication to you. And Lord, as we come, we now want to hear from you. We want to hear from your word. We want our lives to change. We want the change broken in our lives. We want to experience freedom. We want to experience your presence and power. So you're welcome here. And we just invite you, Holy Spirit, that you would manifest yourself in our lives and in this place as the word comes forth. As always, I ask that you would fill me from the soles of my feet to the crown of my head. And I ask that you would just be glorified now, Jesus, in these next several minutes. And I just praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you haven't already figured out, the guy in the shades is Satan. And as we saw last week, Satan's greatest tool in his arsenal is to create doubt. Has God really said? And once you have doubt, then he's able to plant lies within you. And, of course, the greatest lie we saw last week is that God is not good. God really doesn't love you. God's not really for you. Are you really sure that God cares about you? You see, if you can't answer the question, does God love you? 
What evidence do you have, by the way, that God is really for you? You see, if you really can't answer that question, you already have doubt within you, and now you're set up for his lies. His lies not only deceive you, but his lies will ultimately destroy you. Now, the interesting thing I find about this whole thing about Satan and his proof that God doesn't love us is it's about circumstances. He points about the negative things or the so-called bad things that are happening in our lives, right? That's what he uses as proof to show that God doesn't love us. The interesting thing is last week we saw that in Revelation chapter 20, Jesus Christ is going to come back. Did you realize that Jesus Christ is coming back? How many really believe that Jesus Christ is coming back? Jesus Christ is coming back, and we saw that when he comes back, he is going to reign on planet Earth for a thousand years. It's called the millennium. And during the millennium, I mean, it's going to be an incredible time of justice, of peace, of prosperity. There's going to be no wars. There's going to be no hatred. I mean, it's going to be almost Edenic on planet Earth. And then look what happens. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation in chapter 20. Revelation in chapter 20. And we're told this starting at verse 7. When the thousand years, that is the millennium had come to the end, Satan will be let out of his prison. Remember, so he, he even during this thousand year period, remember, he was chained. He was chained in the abyss. He couldn't deceive the world. And he's going to go out. At the end of this thousand years, now get this, and he's going to deceive the nations called Gog and Magog. By the way, Gog and Magog are are just references to anything that is godless, that is anti-God, in every corner of the earth. He will gather them, the godless, those that haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, he will gather them together for battle, a mighty army as numberless as the sands along the seashore. And I saw them as they went up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people and the beloved city. But fire from heaven came down on the attacking armies and consumed them. Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever. Now, I find this absolutely astounding, and a lot of people actually find this astounding. Here you have 1,000 years of perfection on planet Earth, the very thing that we've been asking of God, okay? You have total justice, you have peace, you have prosperity, you don't have wars, it's virtually Adanic, there's no sin, at least outwardly, being tolerated. That's going to be dealt with, and then suddenly, Satan is let loose on the planet for a short period of time. He's led into this perfect environment, absolutely perfect environment, and it says that his converts equal the numbers of the sands of a seashore. I guess modern psychology is wrong. Perfect environments don't make perfect people, do they? You see, maybe really the problem is not God, And that's what I'm going to argue. Maybe the real problem with this world isn't God at all, but maybe it resides within you and me. But I've got ahead of myself. Some of you might be wondering, why in the world would God allow Satan into this perfect environment that he created for a thousand years? It's the exact same reason he allowed Satan into the Garden of Eden many millennia ago with Adam and Eve. You see, the highest value in the universe is love. 
God wants more than anything else to have a love relationship with every single one of us here, every single one out there, every single person who's ever lived. And in order to have genuine love, you must have real choice. And you see, during the millennium and in the Garden of Eden, there really was no choice, if you think about it. There was just God. There was just his ways. It was his way or the highway. There was no choice. So God allows Satan into the garden and in the millennium. See, that is the choice. And Satan is a choice because, you see, Satan represents self. Satan represents narcissism. Satan represents rebellion. In other words, what Satan offers you is he says, you and I can be our own God. And you know what? We know what Adam and Eve chose. They chose to be their own little God. And how well did they do? How well are you doing? How well am I doing, by the way, with being my own little God? And you see, in the millennium, In the millennium, you're going to have children who are born. You're going to have children who are born to the adults, the believers who walked in the millennium full body. They were still in physical form. The ones that survived the tribulation. And they're going to have children. And these children, they need to have a choice. They need to be able to make that choice. And again, that is why Satan is loosed in the millennium. And it says, it just blows my mind, it says that These children who grow up, instead of choosing Jesus Christ, they're going to see Jesus Christ and all that he represents, all the good that he represents, all the love that he represents. They're going to choose Satan and they're going to say, Satan, I agree with you. I want to be my own little God. I think things can even be better. And that is absolutely, absolutely mind-blowing to me. You know, someone once said, You can take the man out of the ghetto, but you can't take the ghetto out of the man. You see, all the children born during the millennium, they still have the nature of their parents. And you know who our parents are? Fallen Adam and Eve. We have the same nature, by the way, that Satan does. Satan's nature is selfish to the core, it's narcissistic, and it's rebellious. And that is the very exact same nature that you and I have. That's what we come into this world with. It reminds me of this little boy. There was this little boy, and he was acting up in class. And the teacher said, you know, as a punishment, I want you to go sit in the front corner of the room. And when the little boy finally sat down, he blurted out to the teacher into the classroom, he said, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. And it's such a perfect description of humanity. We may be forced to sit down on the inside, but uh, on the outside, but we're standing up on the inside. What most people simply don't understand What, in fact, this world really rejects is we grossly underestimate the darkness that resides in the human heart. We absolutely refuse to believe that we are selfish at our very core. We absolutely refuse to really see the narcissism that exists within us. And we refuse to see the pain that our selfish decision is causing the people around us, ourselves, and why our families are in such bad shape and the destruction that we see around us. It's really in our court. And I could cite to you, I was a psychology minor. 
I could cite to you study after study after study that really does show the depravity and the darkness that resides within us, the selfishness within us, but I won't do that. What I'm going to cite to you is perhaps the most famous study in the history of psychology. It occurred actually in 1971 at Stanford University. It's known as the Stanford Prison Study or Experiment. Philip Zimbardo, Skip, can you put that picture up, by the way? You'll see some pictures of it. Philip Zimbardo was a psychologist at Stanford University. And what he did was he set up a mock prison in the basement of the psych building at Stanford University. He selected 24 undergraduate students. These 24 undergraduate students had no criminal record, and they were all deemed psychologically healthy, whatever that means. Researchers, then, and then what they were going to do, these 24, these 24 volunteers, these 24 recruits, they were going to either act as prisoners or they were going to act as guards. And there were hidden cameras all throughout the basement of this kind of mock prison. And there were people watching the prisoners. They were in their prison cells for 24 hours a day, never let out. And then there were guards and they went on eight-hour shifts. Now, this, listen to this now. This experiment was to last for two weeks. It lasted for a grand total, a grand total of six days. Here's why. Zimbardo told the American scientist this. The guards escalated in their aggression against the prisoners, stripping them naked, putting bags over their heads, and then finally had them engage in increasing increasing humiliating sexual activities. After six days... I had to end it because it was out of control. I couldn't really go to sleep at night without worrying what the guards were going to do to the prisoners. End of quote by Zimbardo. Now, these weren't hoodlums from the hood. These, no, these were, these were young people, young men and women educated in one of our finest institutions, Stanford University. Do you get this? And in less than six days, they became barbarians. That's what we're capable of. This is modern psychology. And we we are capable of this kind of thing within us. This is why Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. Do you understand? He's a holy guy. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. What he was saying to Nicodemus is, Nicodemus, you have a major heart problem. And he's not only saying that to Nicodemus, he was saying it to every single human being ever to live. He's saying, you and I have a major, major heart problem. And if it's not dealt with, you cannot stand Nicodemus. You and I cannot stand in the presence of God. Do you understand why? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon, He says in Matthew chapter 8, he says, Blessed, blessed are the pure in heart. It's only those people who have a new heart, a changed heart, a transformed heart that can stand in the presence of God. That just literally blew Nicodemus away. You see, if your heart In my heart, we don't receive a heart transplant. You know what we're going to do? 
Left to our own devices, ultimately we're going to act in selfish ways. We're going to act in manipulative ways. We're going to act in controlling ways. We're going to act in vengeful ways. Why do you think the divorce rate's 50% or better? The reason why there's havoc in our homes is because you've got two selfish people, two narcissistic people, generally, that get married. And they think that they are, you know, going to fulfill each other's needs. And you know what they do? There's a large sucking sound, and they just suck the life out of one another. And then when they're finished with them, they discard them, and they go find somebody else to suck the life out of. But no, that's why we're in such trouble. And see, our homes are in trouble, and that's why our neighborhoods are in trouble. That's why our cities are in trouble. That's why our nations are in trouble. And that's why we're always at war and having crime. We got a heart problem. You know, a lot of us think, you know, well, you know, I just, I just need a minor tweaking. You know, a few adjustments to me. I'll go see a shrink, and they'll do a little tinkering here and a little tinkering there. No, I'm sorry, that's not right. You and I need a heart change and transplant, and only Jesus Christ can do it. And by the way, this is the solution to our problems on planet Earth. You know, people say to me, why is ISIS allowed to do what it's doing? How can we solve the problem of ISIS? Sex slavery, you know, how can we solve the problem of poverty? We go on down the line, boom, to boom, to boom. Do you really think enacting some laws is going to fix the problem? How about if we march on Selma and we're going to have a march? We're going to sing some songs. We're going to say, we're going to give some speeches. Rah, rah, rah. We're going to thump our chests. Is that going to solve the problem? No, it's not going to solve the problem. Because we're still the same on the inside. You can even give economic sanctions to Russia. It's not going to change Putin. That's why I became a Christian. I needed a new heart, and I realized the only thing that can solve, we got the answer. Jesus can reach inside someone, change their heart, and they begin to walk in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-care. We got the answer. Let's quit being timid and get out there. Now, I find it interesting. I find it interesting. That after the great rebellion of Satan, the final rebellion of Satan, and the final rebellion of humanity comes what's known as the great white throne judgment. And we see that in the last part of Revelation chapter 20. It says this, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and the one sitting on it, The earth and the sky fled away. That means they vanished from his presence. But they found no place to hide. You know why? Because nothing, nothing gets away from the omniscient eye of God. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead. Can you imagine all of the people that have died in the seas and in the oceans who didn't know Christ? They're suddenly going to rise up and receive their resurrected bodies. 
at the great white throne judgment. And death and the grave gave up their dead. Do you realize that right now there's no one in the lake of fire? That's right. No one. The first one in the lake of fire is the Antichrist, the false prophet. The third person is Satan. Everybody who dies as an unbeliever goes to the place of torment called Hades. And you can read about it in Luke 16. And all were judged according to their deeds. And we're going to see in a moment. No one makes it into heaven by their good deeds. Verse 14, then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. That is the death of the soul, by the way. That is a soul that is separated from God for all of eternity. And anyone, and anyone whose name was not recorded in the book of life was thrown in the lake of fire. Skip, can you put up the picture? You know, I don't know about you, but... I fear those verses that I just read. Those are ominous verses. This is the great white throne judgment. This, by the way, is the judgment I am absolutely convinced of unbelievers. This is where all the unbelievers, all the reprobates, all the rebellious, all the religious people who have ever lived are going to find themselves standing there at the great white throne judgment. And it says this, John says, I saw the dead. Both great and small, Alexander the Great's going to be there, Genghis Khan, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, John Lennon is going to be there. All the great people who have ever lived, there they are, they are assembled before the great white throne of God. But not only that, it says standing with them are the small people, the little people, you know, the criminals and the slaves, the blue collar and the white collar. There they all are. You see them. They're standing there right before the great white throne. And then suddenly John tells us, and the books were opened, including the book of life. And I can just now see this in my mind's eye. A thunderous voice comes out from the throne and says, John Lennon, Come forward, please. And suddenly this huge, massive screen comes down. And there's John Lennon standing. And then we see the book of works. It's opened. And suddenly on the screen, we see a scene from the life of John Lennon. He's sitting at a table. He's writing something. No, he's writing a song. It's called Imagine. Do you know it? Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. And the voice from the throne booms out. John Lennon, did you write those words? And Lennon shrinks back and he says, yes, I did. And then the book of thoughts is opened up. And the voice from the throne thunders. John Lennon, what were you thinking when you wrote that song? And John Lennon meekly says, I guess I wasn't. But the book of thoughts says, and the voice thunders. But the book of thoughts says, no, John. We know exactly what you were thinking. You didn't like Christianity. You thought Christianity was evil. You wanted to get rid of me, the Christian God. Isn't that true, John? And John shrinks back in fear and terror. And then suddenly, the book of words is opened up. And we see another scene from the life of John Lennon. He's talking to a reporter. And here John Lennon says this. He says... Christianity will go to the reporter. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I am right, and I will be proved right. We are, meaning the Beatles, are more popular than Jesus now. John, John, did you say those words to the reporter? And Lennon shrinks back again in horror and absolute fear. 
And scene after scene is played out in John Lennon's life. As the books of works and thoughts and words and motives are opened. And finally John Lennon's judgment comes to an end. And the voice from the throne thunders out. Do you see John Lennon's name written in the Lamb's book of life? And an angel says, no. No, my Lord. He rejected you. He rejected your precious blood. He rejected your precious sacrifice. And then for the first time, as Lennon looks up, he sees the face of the one sitting on the throne. And it's Jesus. And Jesus says, John Lennon, John Lennon, depart from me, for I never knew you. I consign you to hell. Skip, can you put up that picture? And one by one, all of the religious, all of the reprobates, all of the rebellious, will have their lives examined, everything they've said, everything they've thought, all of their motives, all of their actions. It'll be right there on the screen before the great white throne, and Jesus is going to say to me, you had a chance, you could have received my precious blood and my sacrifice, but you rejected it. And now you're consigned to hell for all eternity. My challenge this morning is very simple to you with everything that I have. Do you know Jesus? And more importantly, does he really know you? You know, it's very interesting what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian Christians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, Skip, can you put that up? He said, examine your... He's saying this now. He's writing to, to a believing church. Examine yourselves to see if you're of the faith. Is your faith really genuine? Test yourself. Is Jesus really in you? Do you see the evidence of Jesus Christ in you? Can you really say that daily, weekly, yearly, you're changing and you're looking more like him and that you're genuinely moving in love? joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. See, if you can't, now is your time. Now, right now. Not, not tomorrow. Not, not, not putting it off. It says in Hebrews, today is the day of salvation. If the Holy Spirit's knocking on your heart and you've never received Jesus Christ, don't pass it up. Because you don't know, this may be the only moment you have. And I pray no one will leave here this morning not really knowing Jesus Christ and having Jesus know them. Now, by the way, if you know Jesus, you don't experience the great white throne judgment. Isn't that awesome? You're not there. We were there a thousand years before at what we call the Bema Seat of Christ. And that's a much different judgment. That's not about salvation. That's about rewards. But you know what awaits the believer after the great white throne judgment? After the, I don't want you to do this because this is next week. We look at Revelation 21. And if you're truly a believer in Jesus, that's what awaits every single person here. So that's your homework for next week. Father, I thank you.
I thank you for your word. For it is true. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you testify to the truth of everything that was spoken this morning. And as we sing that last song, that you do business with every single one of us. Some of us know you, and it's time for us to get serious in our walks with you. Some of us are religious, and we do religious things, but we don't really know you. We know about you, but we've never surrendered our lives to you. And I pray this morning will be the morning that people do that. Now may you have your way as we sing this final song. And I ask for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.